Relationships are massively important in the Christian life. And in the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus has talked about righteousness, He's first talked about this righteousness that every person needs as we recognize our righteousness before God is soiled. It is unable to earn anything before God. We cannot present our goodness before God and get into heaven. And so there must be a righteousness that comes to us as a gift. And Jesus mentions this all throughout the sermon, this righteousness that we need to have given to us, but also this righteousness that needs to be playing itself out in our lives as believers. As we follow Him, righteousness is the outflow of the life of a disciple who gives his life to following Jesus. We saw that in the Beatitudes, the righteous characteristics. We saw that as he described what the ethics of a follower of Jesus look like in, in, ways, in various ways. We saw that in the way that disciples are not supposed to practice their righteousness before others, to be seen by others. And we saw how righteousness expresses itself in uh, submission to the Father and the love for the Father's care. We saw in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 to 34, and now we get to this section where Jesus is concerned about the righteousness as you live out in obedience to Him, you demonstrate in relationships with other people. And we're going to do a portion of Scripture that a lot of people are confused by. But the overarching idea is that there is wisdom in how we relate to one another. And that Jesus wants to craft his people with this divine wisdom so we know how to treat people you see in verse 12 if you're in Matthew verse 12 of chapter 7 maybe the most famous verse in all the Bible so whatever you wish that others would do to you do also to them for this is all the law and the prophets and I would say that this summarizes the verses that go before it it's all about how we live in relationship with other people. We're going to see in these passages how God is shaping us so that we know how to treat different kinds of people. We're going to see in verses 1 to 5, Jesus is speaking to brothers. He uses that word three different times. Uh, people, brothers and sisters, members of the same spiritual family, and he's going to tell them that judgmentalism is condemned. He's going to go on to verse 6, and he's going to tell us that discernment is needed. He's going to get to verse 7 through 11, and he's going to start talking about prayer, and he's going to say that prayer is encouraged. And then he's going to get to verse 12, and he's saying love is commanded. All of these are various types of relationships that God calls us to have, and he gives us wisdom for them. Now, I'm confident that because this is the Word of God, that if we get this clear that God's Word will go forth and accomplish what it intends to accomplish in each of our lives. So isn't this amazing that we can have confidence that even now as we listen to God's Word, we can anticipate the Spirit changing us according to His Word, and we can grow in the wisdom that Jesus gives us this very day. So I want to start in this first section, and we're going to see here uh, that these <laughs> verses contain some of the most uh, common, you might say, maybe overused Christian cliches that are out there. You're going to see judge not. You're going to see uh, pearls before swine. Uh, these sayings that have kind of been in the modern American vernacular, uh, stripped out of their original context and used kind of in 
uh, ways that don't really reflect the original way. We're going to see some of these famous things, but we've got to tear away some of the misunderstandings and show exactly what Jesus is meaning because he wants to craft us, and specifically he wants to teach us how to have certain relationships with one another, with the world, with God, all shaped by love. We're going to start in verse 1, chapter 7. So we'll just read. We're going to read 1 to 5 and explain it. Jesus says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You probably recognize those first two words of that chapter, right? Judge not. I've seen tattoos on people's backs, judge not, or slapped on the back of a pickup truck, a bumper sticker, don't judge. I mean, it's a common thing. In fact, I think some Christians think the whole of the Christian life is made up of the first verse of this section and the last verse of this section. That's just kind of all Christianity. Don't judge and do unto others. That's, that's kind of all is expected of the followers of Jesus. Just never judge anyone and make sure you're doing good to other people. But this, we have to look at what Jesus is saying in context. Sometimes when people are saying, judge not, what they really mean is just stay out of my business, let me live my own life, don't have any critique of the way I'm doing things, even if they're going headway into sin and destruction. Sometimes they're saying judge not just to get people out of their faces. And so Jesus is not saying that people have no right to speak truth in other people's lives. Judge not is not a command for Christians to set aside discernment. It's not saying here that Jesus uh, is expecting His disciples to lay aside any critique of other person or critical evaluation of any other person. He's not saying that. There's something else going on here. In fact, verse 6 would indicate that there is discernment in the way we evaluate people needed. Uh, verse 15 of the same chapter says, beware of false prophets. Well, the very word beware is calling us to be discerning and even evaluating people and their message. We've got to be discerning on people and what they are like and if they are true people of God or if they're bringing false gospels. Exercising discernment is actually required by Christians in 1 John chapter 4, uh, John writes, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. His point is, is that some people will come into the church and they will bring false messages uh, that are not true. And you've got to be wary of that and you've got to guard yourself against that. And his, his medicine for this, uh, the way we deal with the problem of false teachers, he says this, but test the spirits. That's what John says. Test the spirits to see whether they're from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. So Jesus is saying, judge not, but what he's not saying is, hey, don't be discerning. Never make any critical evaluation of anyone or anything or any statement. He's not saying that. He's not saying, hey, truth and error don't really matter that much. Just let them all go. He's not saying that. He is warning against something more specific. The context will show us this. He is warning His disciples and us today against taking the posture of a judge 
rather than a brother or a sister, rather than someone who comes alongside and helps, taking the posture of a judge, asserting ourselves into a position we do not have the right to hold nor the ability to execute, asserting ourselves into a position where we play God in our relationships and condemn people with a final type of condemn, condemning. It's when we put ourselves in a position we deserve not, treat people as their judge, render verdicts on their lives, and then treat them either with our words or actions according to the verdict we have made. It's when we look down on people, condemning them, evaluating or in a critical way and pushing them down, and then sounding the gavel and declaring them to be guilty or condemned, labeling them and categorizing them in such a way that they're now relegated to that status in your mind for all eternity. It really is to usurp God's position as a judge. That's what he's condemning here. Don't judge in this way. And look at verse 2. He goes on and he says, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. And this is saying, this is, this is not saying, maybe I should start with this, it's not saying that, hey, if you're judgmental, other people are going to be judgmental to you, so you better stop. This is actually more serious, and Jesus is making a more pungent statement than just people might judge you if you judge them. It's not his main concern. In these passages, he is referring to God's response to people. And so what he's saying is that if you judge you put that robe on, these satirical robes where you're playing the part of a judge and you're sounding the gavel, condemning people in their relationships, that you are liable then to God's judgment. Instead of acting with compassion, you act as a strict judge meeting out justice. You take it as if it's your role to bring justice to the world or justice to your relationships. You are the one set in place to condemn or declare innocent. You are the one to render out justice. And God is saying here, Jesus is saying to us, hey, if you put yourself in that position as the judge, listen, you're going to be judged. You put yourself in the position that you're a harsh, incompassionate judge to others. This is the way that God will treat you. And this is not the first time Jesus has taught that. Remember in the Beatitudes, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Jesus is saying if you're merciful, God responds with mercy to the merciful. Just a little bit later, if you want to even turn back in your Bible to chapter 6, verse 14, Jesus is saying if you forgive others, God has forgiven you. If you refuse to forgive others, it's you're not forgiven. You, you trace this, and here's the teaching of Jesus. This is the teaching of Jesus. The merciful get mercy. The forgiving get forgiven. The unforgiving, on the other hand, remain unforgiven. And here in this text, the judgmental get judged. Let me just be clear. This is not saying that you earn your salvation by trying to be more merciful and trying to be more uh, compassionate. You try to do these things as if you can earn it. It is saying that the character of God's people will be evidenced in the way that they're merciful because they recognize the mercy of God. And if God has been so merciful to them, how could they not extend that same mercy to others? 
They see the forgiveness of God that they have not earned, and they extend that same forgiveness to others who have not earned it either. They see that God has not treated them with harshness, and so they treat others not as a judge, but with compassion. So Jesus here, if we're taking points, if you're a note taker, Jesus says judgmentalism is condemned. That's our first point. Judgmentalism is condemned. And let me ask you, because Jesus is getting right to the heart of the way you look at other people, not even necessarily your words, but the way you think about other people. Are you their judge? Have you put yourself in a position where you evaluate, you set yourself on the throne, and you look down at the people around you, and you put it in your own power to render verdicts, to judge, looking down on the people who you feel are below you? Are you quick to judge? Condemn? Are you more of a when someone wrongs you, are you more of a they deserve it, let it hurt kind of person? Or I understand the struggle, how can I help kind of person? Friends, God will judge. God is a judge. This is one of the most important realities that we can remember even as we talk about judging. God is the judge. We are not judges. We're not called to judge. We're not called to render verdicts of condemnation on other people's lives. God is the final judge. Now listen, it is right when you are sinned against or when sin is in the world, it is right to desire justice. But it is wrong for you to think that you are the one to mete it out. God will bring justice Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. It is not in our hands to mete out justice on people around us. God has not called us to that. Friends, we should be far more afraid of judging people than we are of being judged. Often we're so afraid that people will judge us. I think though this text would warn us, let's be more cautious that we don't allow a judgmental spirit to creep into our lives and grow and take roots and that strangle our hearts. God will judge. This is the reality here. If you're not a Christian this morning, the Christian message starts with bad news. And the bad news is that this, you're a sinner and you're guilty and that God is going to judge the entire world. Every one of us will face the judgment of God. This is the truth that Scripture very clearly teaches, and this is the message that Jesus teaches us. But the good news is this, is that the judge has volunteered to take the judgment. He has entered into creation in the person of Jesus Christ, and He has stood in our place on the cross to bear the sins and the guilt and the shame of anyone who would trust Him. And so by looking to Christ, judgment has already taken place. And therefore, we don't need to be the ones who judge. God will see to it that justice happens. And your desire for justice is a good desire. But you are not the one to mete it out. Sins, listen friends, sins will be taken care of. God will set all things right. Every sin will be paid for. Either by the unrepentant sinner in hell or paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross 
And He freely will pay for all our sins as we trust Him. The judge will make all things right. And so Christians, we know that we're not the judge. We don't render the final verdict. And Jesus teaches here, let's look at the next section, that this judging, if we look at each other and judge this way, it's all hypocritical. Look at what he says in verse 3. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that's in your own eye? The word log in the Greek has also been used in other places. And in a historian named Josephus, he used that word log to describe a battering ram that was knocking down the walls of Jerusalem. So when he's saying like, sawdust in your eye like there's a speck just something little and you see that and you want to go help but you got this battering ram coming out of your head you're probably not going to be that helpful you're probably going to bowl the person over or hurt them more and jesus is saying hey you see a speck in your own eye but you got this big battering ram coming out of your eye you're just not going to be able to be helpful Look at what he says, verse 4, Oh, how can you say to your brother, he speaks of even going and approaching him, let me take out the speck of your, own eye, or your eye. When there's a log in your eye, how could you do that? Look at verse 5, you hypocrite. Jesus is speaking to people who have got these big problems, these big sins, that are so obvious to everyone else. They look right and they got this log pointing out of their face. And Jesus can say that this thing is so obvious. It's what he means by a log. And there's this other little sin that might be not as obvious. And Jesus is saying that to do this, when your sins are so clearly obvious to everyone but you, to go and try to help someone without dealing with your own stuff first is hypocritical. It's not helpful. Now listen, this is the point here is this. Sometimes we are hypersensitive to other people's sins and very gracious to our own sins. We want everyone to be lenient with our issues, right? We want everyone to overlook our problems. Oh, but other people's problems. We can point those out in an instant. Now do a little self-evaluation here. This is very convicting. We start unpacking what this means for us. What do you notice more in your own life? The sins of others? The sins of your spouse? The sins of your friends? The sins of your parents? sins of your children, far more pronounced. But your own sins, not as big a deal. Jesus is warning against this. He is concerned that we respond to seeing other people's issues with pride. And so I want to ask you, do you notice other people's sins more than your own? I think the Gospel begins where the Sermon on the Mount began. Blessed are the poor in spirit and for us to embrace what christ is talking about is to humble ourselves to the point where we recognize that we are the lowest of the low we are spiritually bankrupt we have nothing to offer god we are empty but god in his amazing grace gives beggars a forgiveness in life he gives himself to those people and so we take no credit and so we don't feel as we're following jesus that we have the responsibility the, the right to condemn all these other people when we know and we're very familiar with our own sin. So are you outraged at everyone else's sins, even the sins of the world that you see on TV? 
but at home with your own issues. Unwilling to really address your own issues. You're more concerned about the speck than the log. This is a very, very important thing for all of us to think through as we come together in unity as a family. That there is a pervasive humility that before we ever point a finger across the aisle to another person, we start by pointing it at us. And we say, how can I deal with my own issues first? See, because Jesus isn't saying, don't help the person with the speck. He doesn't, he doesn't stop any kind of helping other people who are in sin. That's not the point. In fact, other portions of Scripture encourage us to bear each other's burdens and to come alongside one another. But he is condemning judgmental hypocrisy that doesn't acknowledge the own issues in the, your own heart and just stomps across the aisle to deal with the other person's problems. And so Jesus condemns judgmentalism. Now, unless we start to think, and this is how we normally think, we're like pendulums, we, we like one idea and then we take it to its extreme and we forget what the other side might say, Jesus is just going to guard us. So look at verse 6. Look at verse 6, and this is where we see, yes, judgmentalism is condemned, but con- discernment is needed. Look at verse 6. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now, both of these animals, dogs and pigs, were unclean in the Old Testament. They were unclean, filthy animals. If you're thinking this, of a beautiful golden retriever like the one we saw at the park the other day that's not the kind of dog that jesus is talking about this would be filthy street dogs that are picking up scraps they're probably skinny they're willing to fight you over a scrap of food Uh, he's talking about pigs also these pigs probably not babe the talking pig pig like it's probably a wild boar more like that violent um, ready to turn and attack you probably dangerous animal uh, the Bible would call both of these animals to be unclean filthy these are kind of the low bar of of animals these are not ones that you'd keep as pets these are not ones that you you know, throw your crumbs at the table these are filthy do- dogs these are filthy pigs and Jesus is saying hey don't throw food to them don't throw pearls to them Uh, In Jerusalem, the Jews would normally sacrifice meat on the altar as an expression of worship to God. It's a normal thing they do. This meat would be set aside. This would be called holy meat, or it would be set aside for worship. And Jesus is painting this picture. Imagine a Jew coming in to worship, and they got this holy meat they're going to use for sacrifice as an expression of worship. And he imagined the scenario where they take this holy, uh, this holy meat, and they just toss it to these filthy street dogs. Jesus saying, "Don't do that. That is profane." It's, it's almost blasphemous to take what's holy and just throw it as if it's worthless. And then he paints this other picture, and maybe we can identify with this one more. Pearls, costly, precious. Pearls, they're, they're, they're costly and precious today, but in those days, pearls were almost unheard of. To have a pearl would have been uh, the most precious uh, possession that you would have owned. And he's talking about having these pearls and just tossing them as if they're worthless to these pigs who don't appreciate them, they can't eat them, that just angers them, and they turn around and they want to trample you. These are the pictures that Jesus is painting here. 
And very clearly, this is what Jesus is teaching. Now, this might surprise some of us, but it's very clearly what Jesus is teaching, and it's pictured throughout the rest of the New Testament. He's teaching this, that sometimes Christians, in your relationships, remember this is about relationships with unbelievers, and even with people that you love very much, people that you've been sharing the gospel with, maybe siblings, parents, or even children, that you want so badly to come to the Lord, He is saying that if you've shared the Gospel with them or you've talked about the precious truths, the the pearls of God's truth, you've, you've given them to these people, if in those conversations the response is that they're provoked, they're unappreciative, even they're angered, even they just want to get into an argument. They have no listening ears. They don't care to try to understand. They insult or mock you. Jesus is saying, listen, you could stop. You don't need to keep throwing the precious pearls of the Gospel to people who are just provoked by it. You don't take what's holy and just throw it to these filthy dogs that don't care about the holiness of the sacrifice. And I think what Jesus is saying, and maybe you understand this, have you ever been around someone who discovered something for the first time, maybe some biblical truth, uh, some reality, and they're so excited about it and they want to talk to everyone about it. And a week goes by and they're still just talking to everyone about it. A couple weeks, maybe time goes by and this is just their obsession. And every time you talk to that person, all they want to talk about is this one thing. And suddenly after a while, you've heard it so many times, you've heard them talk about it so many times, you can't talk about anything but that one thing with that person. You begin to just go, okay. You almost start to avoid the person. Like they're over there, I'm going this way. Because I know if I go around you, you're going to keep throwing these things at me about this one thing you're very excited about. I think sometimes, if we're not wise, we can provoke people to be resistant to the Gospel by rudely and repeatedly telling them something they know but don't believe. You know, we feel guilty, I think, as Christians so often for not sharing the Gospel enough. Don't we? I mean, it's like some... Like, yes, yeah, I know, I need to share the gospel more, I, I get it, like we need to be faithful, and that's true. And maybe there is a sense that that's right guilt, but there is also something to consider here. Is there is a time, Jesus says, you can move on. It doesn't mean you're condemning that person, it doesn't mean you don't want them to be saved. If you have a, a, a friend or a brother or a dad or a kid that's just not receiving the gospel and every time you bring up the conversation they just get angry and they storm out or they just get argumentative or they just mock you listen you don't stop talking to god about them talk more to god about them and talk less to them about god that's okay how many of you have heard of someone who's been gloriously converted after an angry, heated argument. I've never heard it. You know what I have heard? People coming to the Lord. After someone faithfully has presented the gospel, maybe they, so they know it, they've heard it. But after they were resistant, it was, I'm just going to love you. I'm going to show my care for you. I'm going to be there for you. I'm going to model Christ-like love. 
again and again. Sacrificially, I'm going to show you what it's like. I think this is what Jesus is getting at. I actually think this is very much an encouragement to evangelism. If we feel that someone's not resistant, we don't have to keep pounding our head against the wall and going, what am I doing wrong? I think Jesus would say, you you threw the pearls, you, you threw the good news of the gospel, and if they're not receiving it, keep praying for them, but you can go talk to someone else. You can move on. That's okay. You don't need to keep on. Sometimes our very faithful gospel presentations can be a temptation for someone who's not in Christ to harden and even tighten the knot of their arguments against us. I think there comes a point where you say, I'm not helping. So I'm going to start helping a different way. I'm going to show them love. I'm going to show them patience. I'm going to pray like mad for them. I'm not giving up on them, but maybe I'm going to stop nagging them with the gospel. I think that's what Jesus is getting at here. If your evangelism leads to arguments, it's okay to move on. Rather move on than get angry and ruin the relationship. Friends, this requires discernment, right? I don't know that there's black and white answers here all the time. And so if you have a person in your life that's saying, well, I don't know, maybe I should share the gospel, maybe I shouldn't, I'd say that would be a great thing to talk about with someone else here this morning, pray together about it, seek wisdom. This is what a church is for, right? We're a family. We, we help each other in this stuff. Discernment's needed. Discernment's needed. And so first, we looked at judgmentalism's condemned. Among brothers, we're not to be condemning each other. In a church family, it's helping each other. It's humbling ourselves for each other. Coming together, that's what we do. We don't judge one another. And then in our relationships with those outside us, as we seek to bring the good news of the gospel, we are discerning. We want to be faithful to give the pearls. And some people will receive it, praise the Lord, and they'll be welcomed into the fellowship of the church. And some people will reject it. And if that's the case, we keep praying for them and maybe we move on to talk to other people. That's okay. But then we come to this next thing. We go, okay, well, this requires so much discernment. How do I know? How do I do the right thing? How do I know how to talk to someone? How do I know how to identify the log in my own eye? Or how do I help someone who has a speck in their eye? All these questions come rolling into our minds as we consider these ways that Jesus is teaching us and shaping us to relate to people. Well, I think Jesus now offers us help. Look at verse 7. Now here, he's encouraging prayer. He condemned judgmentalism. He's saying we need discernment. And now he's saying prayer is encouraged. Because listen, we will not be able to do what God is calling us to do here unless God helps us. Look at verse 7. Read it with me. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask of him? See, Jesus is encouraging prayer. Now, I want you to notice that this is not a blanket statement where Jesus is saying, ask whatever you want and get whatever you want. As if you can walk out of here and ask for a bigger paycheck and get it, or a new car and get it. 
Some prosperity preachers say that's what Jesus is teaching, that if you just believe enough and pray hard enough, you can get money in your mailbox or you can get bigger cars and a better lifestyle and health and wealth and prosperity is promised to you. Um, you just got to believe enough. That's not what Jesus is saying here. It's not very clearly from the context. Jesus is not saying that because, look, he describes at the bottom exactly what the Father gives to those who ask. And he says, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what? It says they're good things to those who ask. And so there's very specific. What God wants to give to his children is good things. You say, well, what are the good things that God wants to give to his children? That word in Greek is agathos. It's connoting moral goodness uh, related to righteousness. It's something that all throughout the Gospel of Matthew is referring to something that is inherently morally good. It's related to righteous people or righteous deeds or righteous words. The same word is described good fruit that is flowing out of a disciple's life. It's about real goodness. And so Jesus isn't saying that you just ask for anything, you get whatever you want. He's saying something more specific. He's saying that if you come to the Father asking, seeking, knocking, the Father will give you the good things you need to grow in holiness and righteousness and goodness. The good things the Father has for you is not always health, wealth, and prosperity. Sometimes it's good for the Father to withhold health, wealth, and prosperity. Sometimes you ask for patience and the Lord gives you rowdy children. It's happening to me. Right? Sometimes you ask for wisdom and God puts you in a very difficult situation. And what it's saying here is, well, what do you do? What do you do in those moments? Ask the Father. Seek the Father. Knock at the Father's door. This is amazing to me. Just reflect on me with this. God the Son, Jesus Christ, is telling us, not only telling us, inviting us to come to God the Father. And we know from the rest of the New Testament that we do this in the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's the Godhead, the entire Trinity, welcoming us, inviting us, even calling us to relate to the Father in, where, in a way where we're coming to Him with requests, asking, seeking, knocking. And the promises is that the Father gives us the good things that we need. And the amazing thing is, if you ask for a snake, He's not going to give it to you. <laughs> and so maybe in your prayers, you've been asking for something. And maybe your Father in Heaven's going, Son or daughter, you're asking for a snake or you're asking for a stone. And because I love you, I'm not just going to give that to you. I'm going to say no. Because if I were to give that to you, even though you think it's good, it's actually not going to be helpful for you. And so sometimes God's knows, as He's saying no to your prayers, are preparing you for a greater yes. And sometimes that greater yes will come when the Lord takes you home to glory. When you look back on all your life and all the difficulties and trials and the temptations and the ups and downs that you went through and you look back on that and you say, oh, I'm so glad he said no to my prayers. 
He was so kind to me. He was such a good father for me when he said no to the things I asked for. He was only ever doing good to me. All my life, he was only ever giving me good things. Again, friends, remind yourself of what he is saying here. He's referring again in this passage that when we come to him, we can call him Father. Daddy. And the affection that God has for us is that of a father. Tenderness. Awareness. Leaning in. Caring about us. Imagine the most tender father on the planet. Imagine thousands of all the tender fathers on the planet and all of them being combined into some super father. That wouldn't even compare to the fatherhood of God and the way He loves His children. He's inviting us in. I have good things for you. I will never give you bad things. Come. In these verbs that he tells us to come, ask, seek, knock, in, in the original language, even there are translations that translate it this way, keep asking is really the meaning. Keep seeking. Keep knocking. The, the idea is the way that we get the good things that God has for us, the way that we grow in righteousness, the way we grow in holiness, the way we grow in our joy of the Lord is by asking again and again and again and seeking night and day and knocking and knocking and knocking and recognizing that the good Father will give us the good things we ask for. And again, those good things aren't always in the way that we thought or maybe hoped. It's not always health or wealth or prosperity. You know what? When we do this, we take this seriously, it kills our pride it's humbling to have to ask for something, right? Because in our asking, we recognize we don't have it ourselves. And it's glorifying to God when we ask Him, right? Because we're saying, I don't have it, but you do. And in our asking, we're believing these glorious realities that God is not only rich, He's generous. He has invited us into His treasuries. The doors are wide open. He says, come in, children. This is my kingdom. It's all yours. Ask for whatever you wish. And He will allow us to have that which is good for us. No more, no less. He will be a good Father to us. And the way we access the treasuries is by asking, seeking, knocking. First of all, if if you're not a Christian... This is such good news because it reminds you that you don't have to do anything in terms of earning salvation to get the goodness of the Father on your behalf. What do you do? Ask. Seek. Knock. I mean, just go to God. He gives freely. Everyone who asks receives. If you recognize yourself to be guilty and lacking the righteousness that God requires, what do you do to get it? You say, God, I don't have it. I'm poor. I'm poor in spirit. I don't have the righteousness. All my good deeds are as filthy rags before you, God. And I'm going to ask. And guess what? The Father loves to save sinners. And if that's you, you've never come to Christ and you're sitting here as a non-Christian, We're so glad you're here and we hope you come back again and again. And right now, you could turn from your sin and the Father's arms are wide open through Jesus Christ and you could receive all the riches of His grace right now. And you could know for certain that you enjoy Him forever throughout all eternity because of His grace and not because of your efforts. Ask. And He will give. Now, those of us who are Christians, this text ought to be like fire 
under us. D.A. Carson put it this way, this should create in us a burning pursuit of God. Because here God is just saying, ask, seek, knock. I love to give good gifts, but you come. It's as if God is saying, I want to do great things in your life, good things. I have good things to give to you. I have good things to pour out on your life. But I work through means, right? God can do whatever He wants, but He operates through means. And the means through which God wants to operate is through your prayers. He wants to do great things through your prayers. Why? So that you know without a doubt that it was Him doing it and not you. He loves to answer prayers so that you know, I asked for this and He came through. He was faithful. There's a song that we sometimes sing in church called All I Have is Christ and there's a last verse that says, Now Lord, I would be Yours alone. And live so all might see. The strength to follow your commands could never come from me. Isn't that true? From beginning to end, the Christian life is just one demonstration of God's sufficiency and our inability. We can't do anything that God has commanded us to do, but we ask and we seek and we knock, and the Lord in His generosity just provides ability and strength, empowering us to live out what God has called us to do so that we come to the end of our lives and we say, not only was my salvation all of grace, but every moment of every day has been all of grace. He's been nothing but gracious to me. He has empowered me. He has enabled me. I take no credit for anything. And so, friends, this is an encouragement to pray. Are you you praying? Are we a praying church? Do you view God as a generous Father? And so you storm the gates of heaven to pray. Do you think that God will be tight-fisted, ill-tempered, impatient if you come to Him? Or how do you see God? Because your prayers are directly related to your view of who God is. You might say you believe one thing about God, but your prayers show what you really believe about God. And so friends, we're going to be a praying church. We have to be. There's no other option than to be a church that prays. This is why in your bulletins you looked through it and they had times that we prayed together. That's why we put it in the bulletin so we know that when I'm up here praying or whoever in the future is up here praying, it's not just a solo act. The church is praying. And we're asking and we're seeking and we're knocking because God's a Father. This is why we will pray in small groups. This is why we will help each other in our lives by calling to check in, pray for each other. I had someone call me last week from our church here. And tell me some issues going on in his life. And then he said, hey, can we just pray? And we prayed right there on the phone. We've got to be a praying church. And the reason we pray in service is not because it's some magical moment where poof, Mike suddenly is on stage and none of you saw it happen. It's like magic act, this transitionary moment. All you bow your heads and suddenly he's up here. You bow your heads and suddenly he's gone. This is not why we do that. I mean, we're genuinely coming to our Father because we believe He loves to answer our prayers. We'll end with this. Jesus in verse 12 then commands love. Love is commanded. Verse 12, so whatever you wish, 
that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Here's the all-encompassing command, is that our responsibility, is this is for everyone, is to love them and do unto them the things that we would want them to do to us. This is not a command to not do to others what you wouldn't want them to do to you. You could stay home and watch Netflix all day and accomplish that. This is proactive. This is thinking ahead about other people and saying, I'm going to do unto them what I hope someone would want to do to me. I'm going to go out of my way. To show them love. I think we understand this. Jesus is saying this is what all the law and the prophets is pointing to is this kind of self-sacrificing love that goes out of its way to meet the needs of others. In church, I just want to say in all the ways you have done this, thank you. In all the ways you have demonstrated this, I thank the Lord for that. If you're, again, if you're a visitor, this is a unique situation with churches all coming together. There was a, a family of believers has been here for years and years and a lot of new people came storming in here and let me tell you that takes a lot of patience <laughs> with those of us coming in because we're not perfect and we're sinners and we don't do everything perfectly thank you for doing unto others and being patient with us those of you who have come and you've said i want to serve and you volunteered in the nursery or you're cleaning up or you're even staying around afterwards to greet people and say hello and invite people back. Praise the Lord. Thank you. That's obedience to what Jesus is saying here. That's what that looks like. And I pray that we as a church excel even more as we proactively think about how can I do for others what I would hope would happen to me if I were to be here as a church. We ask and seek and knock that God would empower us to do this. Guys, this is what God is like, except He doesn't do unto others what they want. He goes exceedingly and above and beyond even what they could, whatever they could imagine. God is so generous to us, and He's doing so much for us all the time. And maybe we're aware of a few of those things, but God is doing thousands of things among us and in our community right now. What a God we serve. Our relationships are to be crafted by the Word of God. And we saw three ways we relate to our brothers and not being judgmental and our sisters by not taking an attitude of hypocritical judgmentalism. Jesus gives us wisdom for dealing with those who are not believers that we aren't to try to jam the gospel down their throats even when they're resistant that we can pray and we can love and we can demonstrate other ways of God's kindness to them. He tells us to do unto others what we would like to be done to us requiring a self-sacrificing love. But I think the hub of this passage, even the spring out of which all these different ways we're supposed to relate to one another, the spring or the source of the ability to relate in the right way to the people God has called us to, is in verse 7. Ask, seek, knock. There is no progress here unless we ask, seek, knock. There's no relational progress or growth in unity or growth in holiness unless we ask and seek and knock. So if all your prayers were answered, the prayers that you've been praying this last week, what would, ha what would have happened? What would be different? Who would be saved? <laughs> Who would be more holy? Who would be more generous? Who would be more thoughtful? If all your prayers were answered, what impact would it have made on the people around you? 
What impact would it have made on your very own life? If you had been praying this week and all of those prayers just were answered. Let's actually believe that God wants to answer our prayers. And let's go to Him asking and seeking and knocking. And let's be a church known for the way it prays. I think these verses give us great hopes for the future. I have great hopes for the future because of the nature of God. Because of the nature of God. I believe that if we come to Him in humility and in prayer, He loves to answer our requests. Friends, John Newton said it this way, Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. We can never ask too much. So let's come before our Heavenly Father again and again, asking and seeking and knocking for good things. Let's pray. And so, Father, we even now are thrilled that You're hearing us. That even in this moment, it's not one person praying, it's a group of people pleading. And our great prayer is that the good things You have for us would be given in spades, overflowingly and abundantly, not for our own glory so that Christ would be glorified. We pray that You would make us a holy church, a humble church, a sincere church, a generous church, a fervent church, a risk-taking church. Lord, that we'd be a loving church and that the way You would shape us even by our relationships would reflect something of Your greatness something of Your goodness to us. Lord, the desire underneath all our requests is that Jesus Christ would receive all the glory due His name. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.